0: Hi there, this is Dan Jones, and this is my podcast. So I am a researcher, an oceanographer to be more specific, and what I do on this podcast is I interview other scientists, my colleagues, uh, other people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Um, There just needs to be a little bit of overlap in some capacity. And uh, it's basically something that I wanted to try for a long time, for a few years, honestly, and I, uh, with some encouragement, I finally just decided to do it. So, yeah, here we are. Um, I'm going to warn you up front, I've decided to try a little bit more rambling of an introduction, a little bit longer of an introduction. That's a pretty common thing for a lot of these long-format podcasts. And it's it's not because I think I have anything particularly interesting to say. It's not because I think I'm some fascinating genius or something. No, I, I, it's really more that I think the idea is a little bit more openness, a little bit more kind of just, well, here I am. You know, here's, here's me. I'm a scientist. This is what one possible scientist, one scientist looks like. I'm not saying I'm typical or atypical or anything, but this is just... Here's one of one of us, um, so I thought I would try that that style. So if you don't want to hear me ramble for a few minutes, please do feel free to skip ahead. Uh, the good thing is I won't even know. I I won't even have the opportunity to be offended because I won't even know that you skipped ahead. I wouldn't be offended anyway. Really, it's fine. But um, I won't even have the I won't even have the chance to be offended. Um, so I'm recording this from. My hotel room in Portland, Oregon, I'm at the AGU Ocean Sciences meeting, which is a meeting that happens every couple of years. It's, uh, as you might guess from the name, it's really big for oceanography. Um, it's um where the community comes together, really. And it, it got me thinking a lot about how there's just uh, no substitute for being in the same room. There's, I said that on Twitter at some point. There's no substitute for, you know, getting together. Being in the same space, you can watch people's body language, you know, conversations can drift on, uh, and you can go continue the conversation over coffee. It's easy to arrange, well, relatively easy to arrange meetings. So um, Skype calls are good, Skype calls are great, FaceTime is great. That's all amazing, and it's amazing that we have these things, but um, events like Ocean Science is like getting the whole getting getting a lot of the community together um it does it's special it there's there's something important happens here there's no there's no way around that it's just you have to get people you know humans in the same room to talk to each other and to observe each other and to um be together somewhere and uh honestly that fertile ground is where a lot of really good science uh is is born that's the fertile ground within which a lot of new ideas can spring up it certainly can be inspiring it certainly can be inspiring and exciting and i've certainly felt some of that this week i mean uh it's it's so i'm i'm still working on on getting to a f- you know fully emotionally healthy place where uh, because it's easy to go to a meeting like this and get overwhelmed by this the scale of everything that's going on and to go like oh my gosh there's so much stuff here that I would like to be involved with and there's so much stuff that I wish I could do and uh, that's I'm not saying that's a bad impulse but that if you if you follow that impulse constantly then you kind of have a, a sort of uh, your attention doesn't get focused, right? Your attention gets scattered out in a thousand different directions and then you never get anything done. Anyway, the meeting's great. It's great to see everyone. It's great to have the community come together. And it's, ex- it's exciting. It's inspiring to see what people are up to. It's overwhelming to see what people are up to, I think was my point earlier uh, as well. It's both. It's inspiring and overwhelming because there's so much stuff that uh, I wish I could <laughs> I could get my, my uh, paws into but, um uh, I talked about this with uh, one of my what uh, was uh, a friend of mine at uh, a different science meeting, and she had a much healthier perspective. She was just like, "Well, I know I can't do everything. why would i Why would I feel overwhelmed by what everyone else is doing scientifically? I know I can't do everything. I'm just going to have my little corner, and I'm going to do the best job that I can." and I, I said, "That sounds really healthy. <laughs> I'm not there yet. I'm working on it." i'm working on it i'll hopefully get there eventually so this week i talked to hugh griffiths not this week but in the interview that i recorded last week while i was still in cambridge um by the way i hope you can't hear any construction noise and if you can um sorry about that my hotel room is right across the street from an active construction site so it's a bit noisy but there really isn't i wanted to get the podcast out today and there's not really a good quiet place um Kind of in the hotel, uh, well, there is, but you have to pay like a hundred dollars a day for it or something like that. So, I said, you know, okay, I'll just record it in my in my hotel room. But enough about that. Um, yeah, Hugh Griffiths, I really enjoyed talking to you. So Hugh is a a marine biogeographer is his title. Although if you look on his Twitter bio, uh, he describes himself as a, a straight up marine biologist with an interest in cold places. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about his background. He grew up in in Wales. Spent a lot of time playing on the beach. Um, he followed his interests in living things and living creatures, and was able to turn that into a career. So it's it's a nice story. Uh, we talked about you know work life balance on the process of like getting his PhD. Which, for you, Hugh had a, a a unique journey in that he was already working when he started. His PhD. He was already kind of active in the scientific pursuit when he started uh, to to get his his PhD. So Hugh is uh, heavily involved with a lot of large um, committees and organizations like SCAR, the uh, the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, uh, also Antico, the State of the Antarctic Ecosystem. Um, and you can go to his go to his Bass web page if you want to see more because he's a very well you know he's a connected person he's on lots of committees he's driving science forward he's trying to uh, connect different researchers and research groups up together um, and uh, I thought I don't know I really enjoyed talking with him I thought we had a great chat he's um, been to sea numerous numerous times often on the James Clark Ross which is one of the Bass ships. Bass is a British Antarctic Survey, which is where Hugh works. Did I say that? I can't remember if I said that. He works at the British Antarctic Survey. Um, and uh, he, we talk about uh, what that experience is like, about being on a ship and being the principal scientific officer and the kind of responsibilities that that entails. Um, oh, yeah, if you want to see him on Twitter, if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at at Griffiths. That's G R I F F I T H S underscore H U um, W. I guess I didn't have to tell you how to spell it because you've downloaded the episode, so you've seen his name and text. But that's fine. It's all fine. Okay. Um, yeah. So let me think. Is if there's anything else that I need to tell you? I don't think so. We also talked about um, there's a cruise coming up really soon. There's a group that. Uh, just left the British Antarctic Survey to join the ship, and they're going to try to um, they're going to try to get uh, into the space opened up by uh, there was a large iceberg you may have heard about it in the news that broke off from the Larsen Sea ice shelf, and that iceberg is now drifting away from the Larsen Sea ice shelf, and it's exposed a lot of new a um, new new sea floor. Uh, so what they're hoping to do that you know Hugh and and I talk about a little bit is they want to go in and see. Okay, what does that pristine seabed look like before organisms have really, you know, had a chance to work their way in there? Uh, yeah, so that's that's. I hope that that uh, ship can get down there, and that's going to be really interesting. It's going to be uh, some really important observations because you uh, yeah, that opportunity doesn't uh, doesn't come along every single day anyway. Not on the scale. I mean, this is a huge iceberg. It's like from the distance from london to to cambridge and beyond i think it's uh, just an enormous iceberg so um yeah i guess enough with my rambling introduction i uh let's just uh, get on into it yeah so uh thanks again for you for you thanks again to hugh for stopping by and uh i hope you enjoy it thanks here we go I don't think you've been in here before, have you? Oh, I have. Or,
1: many years ago, when it belonged to Sharon Grant and Grant yeah. and Nathan Cunningham, who haven't worked here for twelve years. Twelve years? She yeah. has, no, she hasn't been here for twelve years. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. I forget you've been here a, a while, so but you've seen. Part.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah no, I used to have to work with Sharon Lokes, and she used to work there, and so I used to be in here like every day.
0: Oh, in here. <laughs> and right? then yeah.
1: since she left, then it's like never been here again.
0: It's weird to see, like, a space <coughs> that you're familiar with, like, totally change. You know, there's different people in there. and She has loads of plants and stuff, so yeah. it, it
1: it looks bigger now. Bigger?
0: Yeah. Oh, right, because no plants. Yeah, it's yeah. dead. It's dead in here now. Sterile. But this space, <laughs> this
1: actual space where she piles of stuff in there.
0: Like papers and books and stuff and, you know, or... And, and plants stuff. and stuff. <laughs> yeah,
1: that, <ups>. yeah, <laughs> genuine, like, just mix of everything.
0: <laughs> we got uh, the board, I like the big board, that's been helpful to have yes. in here. Um, it's, it took a while to get it installed, but we finally got it up there. So, yeah, so uh, you can
1: write all your formulas. The de- dangerous thing to show me, pe- if someone like me, one of these, is like having to change things on your formulas.
0: Yeah, just yeah. subtle, small changes. You like know, Michael. Yeah.
1: Who, um, Michael Thorne. He used to share with chess and I used to have to work chess a lot I'd mm. go in there and just change the character in this thing or <laughs> add another thing or add a square to it or whatever and he would eventually spot them but yeah. it would just be i never do a lot I'd always do just one tiny little thing and yeah.
0: it. so you sneak into their office and change a, change an equation you know put an extra yeah put an X in there for no reason and he'd have to work <laughs> out where X has come from and it's just like did you ever accidentally solve a problem? You know, like, no. oh, that's it. I've never been that lucky. <laughs> that, uh, oh, there was supposed to be a negative sign there. Yeah, like, exactly, You, you put it. There. Just,
1: no, no. I mean, that only happens in the Big Bang Theory. I just yeah. make things worse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just by intuition, you know, like, there should be a negative there. No. But it's kind of funny because I think, so you and I are on a paper, but I feel like we haven't actually had a conver- like a proper conversation. It's weird. I don't know how that happened because we're in the same building. It's but, very you know, bounced though, yeah. that people, like... You have the kind of polite level of conversation. Some people don't even bother with that and just
1: walk past you and don't even <laughs> say it. And those are the ones I'm gonna like just ah, ah. Like, Come on, we're in the same building. Yeah. But there is that thing of sometimes you're more likely to talk to someone in South America than you are mm. <laughs> ten doors down from your own desk or whatever. So.
0: That is weird, right? You have to. Um, do you ever have that thing where you know you travel to a conference? It might be thousands of miles away. And you have a conversation with somebody who's like literally in your hallway or next door i've had it with the bass
1: students when we were in scar biology in belgium yeah where there were a whole bunch of bass biology students who didn't know that i was a biologist because i'm not based on this side of the building
0: right yeah and so they've seen you around but they yeah and I then know.
1: they discover that i'm part of scar I'm running one of the science programs and then they were like wanting to talk to me Whereas was <laughs> before they walked past in the corridor like that look on their face Uh, i just find it quite entertaining because they have no idea what you are and they don't care what you are they don't want to know it's but then you're in a conference and you give a talk and they're like oh he's like on the main speakers oh oh he should be his friend now
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i guess i guess to play devil's advocate a little bit people only have so much room in their heads for a a number of people this place is built
1: like a maze and people go to tea in groups and all that kind of stuff so it's
0: yeah. And I think it's just big enough that, you know, you can get your kind of core group of, I don't know, 15 people or so. And that's, it, and that's all you need. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you, you can be okay with that. And it's not fair to, you know, the other 300-something people in the building, necessarily. They, they, you might learn stuff from them as well, but it's just a human thing, I guess. You get into groups and you just I think just if you go
1: to... on the ship on a mixed cruise, like where there's two or three bits of science going on, then you end up with a lot of new interactions yeah Alex really is quite shy Actually, you know he's not although when he knows people he's quite loud yeah he doesn't meet new people very easily yeah
0: he's going to be on, on this actually he's yeah. agreed to do this
1: and he came on one of our expeditions with us and it was a short one the shortest one I've ever done where it was just like two weeks at sea two like weeks that. well no actually it was a month it's a month in total but we'd done them week and a half of getting down to Rother, a bit of messing around at Rother, then two weeks of our work, and then flew out from Rother again. So basically just, just a month in total. And then he stayed on and worked at Rother to do some glider stuff. Yeah. But I wouldn't know him at all now, probably, if we hadn't done that. And then the amount of yeah. things we've discussed and done stuff since that, and the fact that he came me yesterday, we need to get our gliders out, and they're going to be, your cruise is going next year or whatever. It's just that thing of like, yeah, well, I've seen enough glider stuff now having gone on the ship with you guys. Yes, that's not going to kill our cruise if we say yes mm. to collecting the gliders or whatever. Whereas that was just a bit of luck that I'd been on a cruise when someone's been doing that and the right people who need my help this time. Yeah. And otherwise...
0: You I wouldn't have been exposed to that otherwise. You wouldn't have seen yeah. it necessarily. Because
1: I have the same thing that most people have, which is the automatic delete of somebody else's... You know, like the talk series and seminar series and things like that. <laughs> if it's like... <laughs> I don't know there can be one from pic or polar oceans or whatever and it's like if you're having a busy day you don't even read what that talks about you just Mm. go not for me it's for somebody else and then you think how many of those have I deleted that were actually important to what I do but I just yeah it's an automatic response to just go that's all delete oh shit that was the thing saying we're all getting
0: sacked or something (laughs) that's (laughs) just no you should delete that one just ignore that one yeah (laughs) I never got that
1: email (laughs) but you know that kind of thing where you just sometimes you don't look beyond your own little fence and it's just yeah i try my best not to but yeah things like that pa- paper with andrew and stuff would never have happened if i'd have just i'd have just done something biology and never checked it with a physicist then it would have yeah been.
0: if you would put the blinders on yeah so I, I don't know what that balance is because there's a finite amount of time there's a finite amount of mental energy that you know we have but things have to get more interdisciplinary right now right i mean all of the individual fields Like, you know, biology and the physics component of oceanography and the chemical component, they're all reasonably well developed, but there's got to be some interesting stuff happening. Yeah, the bigger and better questions
1: are now, because they all come to the conclusion of climate change will affect something, and we've got people working on ridiculous numbers over two degrees... Warming in Antarctica in the sea in the next hundred years, yeah, and then I go to an oceanographer and they say on average, and you're just like, how am I getting this? How are we as a community getting this wrong with the same people who can tell us their answers are three doors down or whatever? Yeah, it's it. true. Right. and that's why I really enjoyed that paper actually because it was, it was me having to actually get ideas and thoughts and information from a completely different side of things, that you kind of think you know a bit about, yeah. and then once you delve into it, you're like, oh god, I have not done any of
0: this. So that's the paper where you took um, the temperature projections from the IPCC, from the CMIP 5 suite of ocean models, yeah. and they've all got these predictions for, here's what we you know think the temperature range in the future will be, and then you went on and said, well based on what we know about, you know, these organisms, if I, if you... These organisms will probably be okay in that temperature range and some of the other organisms won't be okay in that temperature range. Yeah. You know, Assu-
1: yeah. Assuming there's no adaptation for these animals at all and assuming where we know them from now is really a representative of what they can tolerate. So there might yeah. be ones where we've never looked for them that are living deeper or colder or warmer or shallower than we've found them. Yeah. But going for species that we have a lot of records for means you've probably got a representation. So We didn't use anything that had less than 20 records just to kind of give up a nice range of depths and temperatures and things that they're found Mm. at and then just simply saying if those temperatures shift what will happen to the distribution of species so communities might change so some things might be able to cope with the warming and other things in the same place might not so then you'll lose something and you may get something else coming in and replacing that or you might lose that element from the ecosystem completely and then you don't know that your things that can tolerate the temperature change can cope without what might be their main food source or something like that so Mm. there's lots of ecological questions that that paper can't solve but it does at least give you an idea of how big the scale of a small change would be on the biology so
0: yeah and it's a way to try to start to connect the physics and you know biology community we're already going. I hope that's okay. No, no, that's I fine. Just, yeah, I just, I just record whatever you want. Yeah, no. yeah. Well, it's, it's been going the whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, know, yeah. you should use whatever, I know. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. No, it's not... It's, it's. I don't edit it, really. You know, it just goes. Oh, There's well, really it's really just supposed to be a conversation. You might want to bleep out swear words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's... I don't... There are no censors. <laughs> There's nobody, <laughs> like... You know, it's just going on the internet. It's not. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I mean, obviously, if... There, if You know, I think it's fine. We're It's just... Yeah. Kind yeah. Of casual. So I just like to capture those first moments of somebody coming in and kind of you know it's just more natural. Yeah, yeah. Because if you kind of have that moment where you're like, now we have started. You know, if it ever feels like NPR or BBC radio, then something has gone wrong. Then yeah. that's like not what it's supposed to, to be like. At now, all. I've got a de- I've got a
1: definite I'm on a microphone voice. If I do, if I know that it's yeah. that, so it's kind of yeah. hello. Hello.
0: Yes, I always yeah serious there's, there's, scientist there's, voice yes. serious yeah. <laughs> Climate change is dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you grow, I know you grew up in Wales, but what right what what part of Wales?
1: Um West Wales, so right on the coast. Oh nice. Just south of Aberystwyth. So um it's to me one of the most beautiful places in the world, but you never appreciate it when you're growing up. Mm. So even as a teenager when I learned to drive and was driving to do my Saturday job on the weekend, I'd be driving along the coast road getting incredibly frustrated by people driving really slowly looking at the views in front of me and then I'm just like get out of the way I've got places to be and now I go back and I'm like look at this garbage oh my god this place is like so beautiful you've got hills you've got the ocean you've got beaches you you've got forests you've got everything you'd ever want yeah but on a small scale enough that it's not like you have to drive miles to get to anything you can just walk out my mum's house and walk to a forest or a valley or a hill or a, or the ocean and you can walk for five hours and not see any people if you want to. Yeah. It's that kind of, even though you're in the UK and always feels quite crowded in the UK, you realise there are places here that are just empty and it's just the complete contrast to living in Cambridge. So yeah. it took a lot of getting used to moving here to work at Bass, Was the biggest thing was not the job, it was it's the flattest place in the
0: world flat and, there and are pe- it's people fa- everywhere, you know, and everywhere it's about as far
1: from the ocean as you can get in the just, uk
0: yeah, yeah. yeah so
1: yeah it's a strange thing that you're crowded you can wherever you go for a walk you can probably see 50 people in your eye line at some point even if you think you're walking into the countryside around here so it's a yeah it's a mm. it's a very different thing so i was really heavily influenced by growing up there anyway like yeah. i don't i didn't think of anything else to do for a living other than, well actually when I was very small I wanted to be an elephant, right? but I didn't yeah. understand the concept yeah. I couldn't yeah. be an elephant, but that's, beyond
0: that. That's funny, my son, uh, when he was in preschool, uh, he was asked a question about what he wanted to be, and he, wanted, he said he wanted to be strong like an elephant. He didn't literally say an elephant, but I know, he, said I wanted he wanted to be wanted an to be actual, be, to be my, actual elephant. Then
1: my parents had to explain that I'd need a job, and so I thought I'd be a doctor, and they were <laughs> very pleased, and I said I'd be an elephant. That was a doctor and so. But then beyond that, I kind of moved on to the idea that actually having the beach, a two-minute walk from my back door. I was down the beach every day, winter, summer, whatever, yeah. walking the dogs or oh. just playing in rock pools. And what I do now is essentially the same thing.
0: That's amazing. But the
1: rock pool is the Southern Ocean. Yeah. And it's the, and there's I always kind of, I never thought, what if I don't get the grades or what if I don't get on the course or what if I nobody wants to give me a job in that uh, it was just oh yeah I'm going to do playing on the beach for a living uh, and it's sort of that's yeah. amazing
0: uh, that must have been so useful to have that kind of feeling or sense of you know a, a direction and because I think in the other conversations I've had so far in this relatively short you know podcast there, there's another kind of more random path approach to, you know, career progression, which I feel like is a bit more what I've taken. So uh it's but so I guess you, you didn't necessarily know exactly what that was when you were a kid, right? But you had this sense of like, well this is the the kind of area of experiences and things I want to stay around and connected to.
1: And some of know. my biology skills then were probably better than they are now because <laughs> I was living it every yeah. day. So yeah. if I went down the beach and wanted to catch a particular type of fish or shrimp or whatever to show my friends or just to put in a bucket like you do when you're a kid. Yeah, I knew where on the beach I would find those, like which part of the beach, which zone, under which sort of seaweed, under, under a rock, whatever. I knew where I could... Uh-huh. Now, all the science that's in me in terms of like random sampling, blah, 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 all these things, takes that away from you. You don't go and just find the thing you want. You go and find the things you find given your sample design. And it, it kind of killed that element of almost... Knowing the environment inside out, and that's why I try to kind of come back to sometimes just looking at old photos of things we 've caught and things and just looking at how amazing they look, yeah. because you spend so much time with the name and the DNA and the what does that tell you about the environment and you go, you come back and go, "Oh my God, we caught a thing that looked like that that 's yeah. like the weirdest thing i 've ever seen in my life <laughs> and at the time you, you have an emotional response to it rather yeah. than and I think that has always been part of it when I find a new thing on the beach or when you see something you don't understand or never understood then you start to get a handle on it and that's what's really exciting yeah. about it
0: there's, a draw, it. there's yeah. a draw to it
1: but the one thing I wasn't drawn to was Antarctica mm. I got as far as graduating from my degree at Limpool University and the final year there was on the Isle of Man so you went to a marine station a UK marine, it's now closed down but it was an amazing experience because you got to do the same sort of thing You'd, I had friends working on Rockpool Ecology I was doing scallop trawling industry bycatch data Mm. to see what was being damaged by fisheries and things like that. I think I've heard about this.
0: Uh, Eugene Murphy, I think, also went through that. Yeah, Yeah. and
1: a whole bunch of other people who now work as marine biologists in BASA and other related institutes and things were all there. And I've seen their photos on the wall there from previous years and things. They had all the previous cohorts pictures on the wall. So there's a lot of people who... I recognise from their photos when they were sort of mm. late teens, early 20s. But you said it
0: it's, it, it's closed? It closed. They
1: moved to the Proudman Labs and things in Liverpool, were basically, what came along and replaced that yeah. facility. And it was an amazing thing, though, because I got to go out on a genuine survey boat that was out collecting real fisheries data. Hmm. And the work I was collecting was contributing to policy things and information to the local government and things. And yeah. so that was amazing. But at the time, all of my friends were getting very excited about the bass wintering marine biologist jobs being advertised and the Mm. marine assistant job, which are ones where you go down to Antarctica and live there. And now I'd be encouraging everyone I know to apply for that job. At the time, I was like, why would anyone want to go there? It's so cold. It's It's the middle of nowhere. Miserable. Can there be anything (laughs) interesting living there other than a few penguins? And although penguins are cute and funny and everything else... I've never wanted to study seabirds. There are people who dedicate their lives to that, and hats off to them, and they deserve the jobs in that. I've never wanted... I never had the passion that they have, so I shouldn't be doing that. It should be the people who Mm. really want to do that. I was more into the creepy crawlies and the things with lots of legs or no legs or lots of eyes or no eyes or just a blob that you don't know what it is. Those are the kind of (laughs) things that I got excited about as a child and probably still do now. But Antarctica... No, wasn't I wasn't tropics, would have been nice <laughs> coral reefs, scuba diving every day, yeah. not having to wear 20 layers of neoprene or whatever. But, and deep sea stuff was also a bit off my radar. And mm. most of the stuff we do now would be, even the stuff we consider shallow, would be called deep sea by a lot of biologists. Yeah. And so all of the stuff I'm doing now was a, something I hadn't even considered as a career option. Mm. And I kind of fell into it. So my random path was there was a job advertised here that was a temporary job doing some databasing of some mollusk records. And 17 years later, I'm still here. And I've been promoted twice. And my contract became open-ended to begin with. And then it was a part-time job to begin with. And it went full-time and all these kinds of things. So I hadn't even got a PhD when I did that. And I did (laughs) my PhD here because there was the option to quit the job and go and do a PhD, mm. which I didn't really fancy doing, no. or be stuck in that kind of limbo of doing research, but people not giving you the same level of respect as your peers because you haven't got those magic letters in front of your yeah, name. Yeah, And I was on the ship and um, a colleague from here, Dave Barnes, said, well, why haven't you done a PhD? Well, you know, you could do one. And mm. I said, yeah, but I don't want to lose this opportunity to go on a Hmm. ship to Antarctica and do that as my job to then come back and try and fight for that against the hundreds of other people who want that job and he said well you could just do it through the open university like the marine Hmm. biologists were doing at the time at Rothera Hmm. and he said I'll supervise you Ah. and this was in the bar in the evening I'm not saying anyone had had a lot to drink because I don't drink anyway but Hmm. it's one of those things where you think well that was just a conversation no one's ever going to follow up on that the next day, he'd already printed off some of the forms uh, for me uh, to look at.
0: Great. You had, and, you had an advocate. You had somebody you who know, yeah, believed and, in you who wanted to push for you.
1: And actually, I ended up with three supervisors in-house because there were <laughs> lots of people who thought it was an interesting project and were willing to then support it. Yeah. So, But I would... I'd have really struggled if I'd have had to go and leave a job that's this interesting and go and do the normal student mm. lifestyle because I was that little bit older.
0: yeah. Mm.
1: I knew what I wanted to do and it was amazing though because this is, it kind of shows that if you're in that right place and that mindset I managed to get six chapters in my PhD and all of them were published before my PhD was finished so I kind of <laughs> it was like doing a job and it was done alongside my ordinary yeah. job yeah and I didn't work a single day longer than normal nine to five hours in that time because I knew what I was doing I was already experienced in the field it's not like those first year and a half of a PhD where you have I just wanted to get it done it wasn't I've always wanted a PhD it's like I need to get this qualification Mm. to continue my career in the way that it's going anyway so it was a very odd thing to just kind of everybody else's random career path starts when they're younger and eventually gets to the mm. subject they want to do. Yeah. Mine's, my random bit started at PhD level, which was a bit of a kind of everybody else's kind of.
0: And with the, the Open University, I mean, that can you, can you, you can kind of be any, anywhere for that, right? I mean, you don't have to physically go to a place necessarily. I mean, you can work with Bath, with for example. I don't know a ton about the Open University, but.
1: So the Open University, you can do courses through them anyway. So yeah. you can get all levels from pre, Degree right through to you know, masters and all those kind of things you can do, plus PhDs and things with them. But British Antarctic Survey is a registered institute with them, so yeah. our employees, if they've got enough experience with students, can be a supervisor. And there's no open university supervisor, it's all done by whoever's nominated within the institute. Hmm. So it meant I didn't have to travel to an, another university or go or spend because that's what I didn't want to do was spend a lot of time doing things that. designed to get students up to where I was anyway so it was a brilliant option for me and the fees at the time were really reasonable so it was the same as doing a normal training course and that would be my Hmm. annual fee so it made sense to Bass and to me that I just did that alongside what I was doing and so much of it overlapped that the papers for my PhD counted for Bass as well so nobody had any issues with me spending time on this because it was my job yeah, at the same time. So it was a, it was a, for me, it was a painless way of doing yeah. it. And you watch other people and students are now supervised going through that thing of the last six months of their PhD and the hell that that can be for some people, even when they're doing really well, because you've got that looming deadline and things. Yeah. And I was just like, well, I've got it all. I've just got to print it. And the one day I worked more than a standard day was when the printers weren't working yeah. and I had to print it out <laughs> to send off to be examined. Yeah. And I was just like... Oh, this is that they all mean about working long hours. It was just (laughs) me just pressing print. (laughs) It's
0: it's just stuff like this. It's just the, yeah, the... Oh, my laptop is acting a bit funny and I can't, you know... Yeah,
1: I was... But I was incredibly lucky. But I also enjoyed it, which I think is a bit of a privilege with a PhD because a lot of people end up hating what they've Mm, done and I've ended up continuing almost directly on from that into other stuff. Yeah. And... I think it's quite a privilege, really, to get to do any of this stuff anyway. Getting to go to Antarctica, get to discover new species, getting to do all of these things anyway. Yeah. But also, to have enjoyed it all as you've gone along. is kind of, you know, there's got to be some painful moments in there sometimes. and But the actual work side of it is always interesting, even if it's challenging. Yeah. Do
0: yeah. you mind if I hopped back to Wales? I was kind of curious what your folks uh, did or do, if, if that's um, all right.
1: My dad was a surgeon. Yeah. Um, and my mum was a nurse, classic combination. Yeah. And um, both very scientifically minded, my dad particularly. My mum's got quite a lot of... She's good with crafts and arts and things like that. And she, um, she taught me to draw and things. So actually my hobby when I'm on a ship, and the only time I ever get to do my hobby now is when I'm on the ship, is drawing
0: pictures and things. I've seen some of these. are really good. Yeah, they're really, really... You've, you've done some very nice, like very detailed uh, thank you not portraits but like drawings for yeah. the crew like a, the James Clark Ross to say you know thanks for letting us live on your ship and annoy you for you know four to six weeks and uh, it is, it, there's a lot of people will give
1: an image or fo- printed photograph or some of the science isn't it? Yeah. and I I knew that it's not mindfulness I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing it as a yoga kind of or yeah. zen or meditation kind of way but it gives me that same effect of when you're surrounded by the same group of people every day and there's no way off the ship. It is like a kind of reality game show thing where you're all trapped in a thing together and you have to learn to live with personalities that you wouldn't normally live with. Yeah. Having something that's just yours, where your mind is thinking about something that's not the cruise or not the science or not oh I've got to get up at four in the morning to do whatever. You just do ten minutes a day, or maybe an hour a day if you've got the time, something intricate and that again sort of gives you a little bit of an escape. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's not like you can go for a walk. There are lots of things <laughs> you can do. There's a mini gym. You can do circuit training in the hold. You can do all sorts of things to keep your body yeah. active. Yeah. But in terms of taking your mind somewhere else, there's I, every, I've seen some people making balsa wood replicas of the ship. I've seen other people making other little models that model yeah. kits they take with them, and I think. People who use the ship quite a bit, you'll see they've all got their own little thing that yeah. they will do, even if it's just going off and playing guitar or something, it's
0: just... <laughs> when I was on, there were uh, two people who, they decided to make a camera obscura from uh, one of the trash cans, because the trash cans kind of have this half-cylinder shape to them, so they painted the inside black, and they um, they had some x-ray paper, you know, some some like uh, photosensitive paper. <laughs> That they put inside the, and they made a little camera obscura out of just the trash can and some black paint and some photosensitive paper, and like that's, that that would that kept them occupied for for days and days. I don't think they ever got it working really well, but it kind of it was something to do. And this is kind of like, this is something that I didn't really uh, understand or appreciate before I went, you know, on the ship. Um, so there's the crew on the ship, and the crew stays on the ship for like four months. You know, and they're cooking meals every day, they're um, you know, running the actual running some of the, the instruments, like, you know, operating some of the large machinery, operating cranes sometimes. Um and then crews of scientists, you know, just show up on the ship, stay for a few weeks and then go. So it must be bizarre for for the crew, you know, every few weeks there's this new group of uh of, of personalities that get on the ship and like you said it could be a pretty wide range of personalities you're probably i'm sure we've annoyed the crew before i'm sure that's <laughs> happened there's no way around that probably but um and so it's, it's kind of like their home and you have to be respectful of the fact that you're you know entering their temporary home but it's also you know it's going to be your home as a scientist for a little a little while um so it's it does kind of keep a weird i don't i don't know if i totally like it but i kind of understand that the kind of you know crew versus science kind of division there's like a weird social clustering that happens there as well but i think it's just because the crew is on the ship for longer and the, the you know there's this big there's a cruise of scientists kind of come on and off the ship as time goes on
1: i think that's really true and also there's almost this thing of when we're doing our stuff which is st- sticking video cameras or nets down at the bottom of the sea to look at what lives there You'll get this thing from some of the crew where they're like, All right, I'm not interested in the science, I'm just here to do my job. Hmm. And then you'll see them sneaking a look at what you're doing in the lab because <laughs> they want to know what we caught, they want to know what's on the camera. And, they, and they're still pretending they're not really looking, but you see them looking, and eventually by day three, they're coming in and going, so what's that thing then? Yeah. Oh, what's that? That's a bit ugly. And then eventually they're helping you. <laughs> <laughs> or they're, they're also incredibly good at, if they know you're really busy and you're working hard, they'll go the extra mile and so if the deck is covered in mud from where our nets Mm. come up or something and they know we need it clean for next time the net comes up so we don't contaminate our next sample we should be sending some people out there to clean it because we've made the mess but if they know that we're all hands on deck doing what we're doing we'll come out to clean it and it'll be done and there'll be no word said and then we'll thank them and they won't make a fuss about it they don't want they just they know that we're working I think if it was a point where they saw us standing around or having a coffee break or whatever and they were left cleaning up, hmm. then there's the chance of upsetting them. So I think yeah. very often it is like visiting someone else's home. I think you're right, that you've got to do that thing of... It's like when you're at somebody else's house and you don't know whether you should do the washing up or not, but you at least need to offer yes. so that it looks that you've noticed that somebody is doing the washing up. It's that kind of feeling of you don't want to take anybody for granted. Yes. And these people are working long shifts and some of them will work extra hours to make sure that our stuff happens if we've got a limited amount of time to work in an area then they'll work a few extra hours to make, and at the end of it having something like that the drawing we were talking about that you can give them something to say I know it's not much but it's something personal that we've made to say thank you to you for what you've done because you can't pay them You couldn't buy them enough beer in the world sometimes to make up for the extra effort they've put in or the help they've given you. But we had things like, we had a project where we were looking at what animals were hitching a lift on floating kelp that was floating around the Mm. Southern Ocean. And I had guys at 6am jumping out of their bunks because I'd sounded that we'd seen a bit of kelp going past the ship and then getting a um, grappling hook on the end of a rope and catching a piece of kelp as the ship went past it <laughs> when they're still wiping sleep from their eyes do you know what I mean it's that kind of yeah. thing where they'll get up and do that because it's like we've said can you get me that thing and they go yeah we'll try our best and yeah. it's like if someone asked me to throw anything at that time in the morning <laughs> then I'd probably go overboard with it it's just that but they will yeah it's it's really important to me that every time we produce a paper or anything that comes out of the work we do at sea that we really thank the people that really make it happen, because if it was just down to scientists, we'd still be having discussions over the best way of doing something. we would have missed <laughs> the whole yeah. thing. And it's like, <laughs> so yeah, it's kind of...
0: yeah, it's uh, the the crew was great when we were on and It's just like you were saying. Um, it, it, it took me a little while to appreciate that when you're a scientist on the ship, that part of what you you should be doing is you know, in addition to you know, working hard on the project and like you saying, offer to do some washing up or to help do small chores around the ship, is you almost need to be a little bit of a, of a cheerleader. You know, you, we want to help the crew under you know feel like that you're excited about what you're doing and that you're um, there for a reason and that the crew is there for a reason. You know, they're uh, thousands of miles away from their loved ones for months at a time, and, you know, you, you the scientists can play a big role in, you know, helping them kind of feel like it's worth it and feel like, you know, yeah, I'm this is good science we're doing. We're working hard. We're excited. And th- this is why I'm excited about it. I caught a, a little bit of a, a... I understood that a little bit better when there's an exchange between the scientist and a crew member on the ship I was on. Um, and the scientist was feeling a bit grumbly that day, a bit just kind of like... Which is understandable. I mean, it's not the easiest environment to, you know, live and survive in. I mean, it's fine. It's it's There's no, like, problems. It's just certainly not, you know, being cushy in your own... Yeah, it's, it's, not, home. You know? yeah, it's, it's not, not home. Yeah, it's not home. So you do have some... So the scientists were being a bit grumbly and like... And the crew member was like, well, why are we out here then? You know, what are we doing? <laughs> and at that moment, it kind of clicked for me, like, ah... All right, we we need to be really careful when we complain because we we don't want to make the crew feel like that this is some you know fool's errand or some worthless thing we're doing you know you want them to understand that yeah this is good stuff we're doing and we're excited about it
1: i find that because i've led the last two cruises i was also the chief scientist on those and i felt the real responsibility to explain the science so have it not a lot of the crew won't come to these things if you do a talk on what you're there to do but I tried to get one in at the start of the cruise so anyone who's interested in knowing why we're doing what we're doing can come along and see a 15 minute little presentation about what the science is going to be about and what we're trying to achieve but then also all the way along if we get a really good catch or there's something really exciting I call the bridge and say captain do you want to come down and see this because this is a good one this is something where we can explain a lot of what we're doing so we're really lucky with our stuff that it's very visual as well so i know with oceanographic things for example sticking in a ctd and getting some very interesting wiggles on a screen (laughs) isn't necessarily going to translate to every audience but if you've caught a giant octopus or a one meter tall sponge or the weirdest creepy crawly you've seen in your life everybody can connect with that even if it's horror even yeah. if it's <laughs> what the hell is that I don't like it there's some sort of response to seeing something in the flesh literally and we get a lot of excitement and then there's some brilliantly dry humour where they all want to know if you can eat it yeah. it's the first question most of the crew will ask is can you eat it <laughs> and my standard response is it's probably poisonous and it's probably not but it means they won't eat it <laughs> but um, there's also this this Kind of. a lot of them would have worked on fishing boats and other things in the past and we had a Chilean guy who was on his first he, he was on his first trip with Bass and we took him to the southern Weddell Sea so about as cold and icy yeah. as you can get and he comes from the northern end of Chile where it's quite warm and sunny mm. <laughs> and I've never looked, I've seen anyone look so cold and miserable on the deck <laughs> and he kept saying if you're looking for fish, I know places far further north where you could get fish. <laughs> you don't have to come here to get
0: them. Why are you torturing yourselves? Yeah, why <laughs> you, yeah, stuff
1: near the Falklands you can get fish. You don't need to come to here. And by yeah. the third cruise I'd done with him, the he'd somehow become immune to the cold
0: mm.
1: and knew what we were looking at and was spotting things that we'd missed on the deck that had come off the net uh, and go, oh, you forgot one of these. Nice. And, and it's amazing how once they've got into that family of being on that ship, it is it is like a kind of family atmosphere and they it doesn't and you can see why the the random scientists like us popping in and they've got their dynamic already set up. If we're particularly loud or annoying or grumpy or any of these things you could really upset the entire lot of them because when you upset one it'll sort of ricochet through the whole crew where you don't want to have a grumpy crew so I try to keep them as happy and on side as possible
0: yeah yeah definitely and it's it's interesting to kind of have that social responsibility as well because if you look on paper you know here's what the PSO does you know they're in charge of scheduling and making sure that all the supplies get on the ship when they need to be on the ship but you know nobody. And it would be weird to write it down but you know that is one of your responsibilities is like emotional management of your team and of the crew as well you know. sometimes
1: as scientists, you have to tell them to stop we had a really enthusiastic expert on one particular group of animals and he was keen on seeing every one of the animals from his group but we were working 24 hours a day we had mm. two 12-hour shifts yeah so he couldn't do both shifts. It's physically impossible, but he wanted to try and be there for every time the net came up. Oh. And I had to take him aside and say, look, everything will be waiting for you when you wake up. Yes. It's like that kid at Christmas who doesn't yeah. want to go to sleep <laughs> thing. It's that thing of, look, honestly, we won't damage them. They'll all be waiting for you and you can do whatever you need to do with them yeah. first thing in the morning. <laughs> now go to bed. This
0: is not physically reasonable. or healthy. Yeah. yeah. Because <laughs>
1: I, it is that thing of I can understand exactly where he's coming from because he's passionate about what he's doing. But it is that thing of not everybody is... Well, nobody can be a superhero. Nobody can stay awake 24 hours a day for two months or something. It's yeah. going to kill you in the end. Yeah. And sometimes you need to hear that as chief scientists as well because you're trying to make sure everybody else is getting some rest and going to meals and everything else so you're the first person to say, right, you go and eat. I'll cover this for half an hour whilst you're eating. And you need some good colleagues to come back and go, right, we've eaten. Yeah. Go away and eat yourself. You can't just have a, sandwich, a cheese sandwich every day and hope that that'll...
0: Yeah, you have to take care of each other a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like, is that a role you enjoy, being a chief scientist on the ship? Is it something you, you like doing? or?
1: I hate to admit it, but I'm probably a little bit of a control freak. Yeah. <laughs> and the responsibilities I had before I was chief scientist would always be about making sure that the samples and the data and everything gets back... Correctly, Because there's no point in going. It's great, you know, going out there and doing all the adventurous bits. But if you come back and you haven't labelled everything properly and you haven't got everything recorded properly, yeah, it's pointless. Yeah, And so that kind of... The control freak side of me was kind of brought on a bit more by having to make sure that all your paperwork's correct and everything else. Mm. And so it was quite... Well, not an easy step, but stepping up into the lead role where all of that is your responsibility was was okay. I do find it that if you have to tell somebody no, like no we're not doing that or the thing you really wanted to do we can't do, either the equipment's broken or the weather's wrong or we haven't got the time and you feel like you're letting people down Mm. even though you know it's sensible and right to be the person who has to take responsibility for saying no to somebody or at one point the winch had completely broken Mm. and so it looked like 50% of our science couldn't be done on that expedition. And amazingly, the engineers fixed it within 12 hours. They were
0: On the deck, while the ship's moving. Yeah, they fixed it as we were going
1: along. And in the meantime, we had a camera that was going over the side that was using a different winch, so we could keep doing that work. But in terms of collecting animals, we weren't stuffed at that point. And I had to get the whole room, like, fill the bar with all the scientists and give them the worst-case scenario Uh, talk. Okay, yeah. And just seeing these little faces as if you've told someone their puppies died or something like that. It's just this, all these sad eyes, and having to keep it like professional and strong and not be like one of them. You have to kind of detach yourself from that and say, this is just the way it is, and I'll answer any questions, blah, blah, blah it kind of felt, that was the hard bit, was actually, you're upsetting a whole bunch of people, you're telling them
0: bad news. Separate, yeah, and that bit of separating yourself is really interesting, because I guess that's, that's almost what, that's, and that's part of moving into a leadership role of any kind, isn't it, is you do have to kind of separate yourself a bit, yeah, and say like, well, the responsibility is on me to make these kinds of decisions, so... Um, you know, for it to be a little, I'm, I'm going to have to be slightly removed and more detached and objective to be able to, you know, make those kind of calls. Um, otherwise, it's just too difficult to, you know.
1: Yeah, and I always try and your buddies. Mitigate it all by, before you even set off, having the master plan of what you'd really love to achieve, and then we're going to assume there'll be some bad weather, some broken equipment, some whatever. And agreeing with everybody before we set off that if we run out of days, this is what we'll cut first. Hmm. Because I think when people have a, a shock or a surprise, <coughs> they're less able to cope with a change of plan at that point.
0: Oh, yeah. So
1: if you've already said, look, if something goes wrong, expect this bit to be cut first, so the- then when it happens, everyone's like, it's a shame. But we kind of knew that would happen. Whereas if you go, right, my backup plan is this now, when you've just told them it's gone wrong, Mm. you'll have that whole people trying to talk you out of it and make you change your mind and do something different that they would favour. And when you've got 30 other voices on the ship, you can't have that situation. And what you don't want to do is say, no, it's my way or the highway kind of thing because you need these people on side. You can't run a 30-person operation on your own. You Hmm. really need to keep them friendly and you also need all of this agreed with the captain and the crew as well yeah. so it
0: goes back to managing yeah. expectations again yeah. doesn't and, it
1: but you've got to it's, it's that having to think of all the people who need to know what you're doing there's a very big difference between saying we're starting work at 7am and we're starting trawling or camera work at 7am because it may be that we're going to spend two hours looking for a site Hmm. to do the work we're going to do yeah. using seafloor mapping. Hmm. What you don't want to do is tell the crew we're starting work at 7am and then we'll be ready on the deck at 7am thinking that you're going to start doing mm. something
0: uh, right. if been, you're not. They've suited up. And they've they've yeah, they're the standing out in here, the cold. It could be raining
1: cold. or snowing or just horrible weather. Or well, they could have been sat having a cup of tea and some breakfast or doing some into- indoor jobs if you told them a realistic timescale. Yeah. So it's very easy... To become the bad guy, if you don't think of how it'll affect the 30 other people who are involved in that chain of events that will happen afterwards, and that's where a lot of people who are new to ships and things will make the mistake of saying, yeah, we're going to start after breakfast, and what that means in terms of starting could be 20 different scenarios, and the crew just think, we're going to start doing the activity you've told us we're doing, and... So if you haven't explained it properly, then, yeah. yeah. And even the scientists can get really annoyed if they've had to get up two hours early and then realise nothing's happening for four hours. It's, yeah. yeah, you don't want to make people tired or grumpy when their whole world is rocking up and down anyway. And even just moving about, getting up, having a shower, pouring a cup of tea, anything in a moving ship yeah. is
0: ten times the work. Yeah, you're always yeah and leaning from one side to the other and... All your stuff's shifting around. It's yeah, so
1: to try and make everything else as easy as possible because life in general is harder than normal anyway. So, yeah. And people are missing friends. If, I think how you get to the end of a trip? People are missing friends and family and their kids yeah. and all those kind of it's things. it months. Yeah. Were, for months, yeah. And, yeah, the internet is great. You can email and you can even occasionally make a phone call. Uh,
0: it's like, uh, yeah, there is internet on the ship and at least when I was on, somebody likened it to late 90s dial-up which felt about right i'm like yeah that that feels about right you can do some things but you're gonna wait for it and yeah. you probably want to load the you know text version of facebook or twitter instead of the full you know monster but it yeah yeah but the, the phone connection was great that's that's one kind of neat thing is that you can call the ship you know from a cambridge number yeah because of the magic of you know <laughs> data connections and that um, but still it is isolating right even with the nice phone connection and some internet it's really yeah it's, it's probably one of the and it's almost sometimes better to be isolated
1: because if you have those little moments of talking to someone back home your head that was in one place is suddenly transported back mm. to what you're missing from home yeah whereas a ten line text only email a day saying yeah I'm alive and this is the sort of stuff I've done today and then getting one for them from home hmm you can save that till you're in your cabin on your own and have that little moment hmm. then and then go back to work or whatever afterwards. Again, it's about kind of almost partitioning your brain because if you're going to live and work somewhere, if you're constantly thinking about somewhere else, it doesn't make it easy. And you almost don't enjoy it. You won't allow yourself to enjoy the experience of being on the ship. So, hmm. personally, I avoid watching movies and stuff on the ship because I always think there's something more interesting out the window even Mm, if it's just the sea and just big waves (laughs) that to me is something I don't get to do here I could watch a TV box set I could watch a movie anywhere in the world I'll do that on an aeroplane when I've got nothing else to do But when there's a whale out the window or an albatross...
0: It's dark sometimes, though. You know, sometimes you can't But even then, I'll go anything. and maybe
1: be either sociable or go and do something like the drawing or something like that. Mm, something yeah, where, yeah. okay, so I'm away from home. There's none of the normal distractions. I've got the time to do drawing, for example. I'll do that. Yeah. There's no excuse. I've, and I'll even pack a small box of personal items like a gym kit or whatever so I don't have to take it in my luggage and I'll put that in the container to go down with all our equipment and I'll always stick in a frame to put the picture in oh yeah and the paper like, and pens and things I'll need so all the think. things that might get broken if I stick them in luggage in an aeroplane I can put it in a nice metal Zagi box and send down relatively safely hmm. compared to a hold of an airplane anyway so
0: yeah it's funny how you have to think so far in advance because things have to get shipped you know, to the ship before it actually leaves the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> I think that's
1: part of the being a chief scientist is actually developing your psychic skills hmm. because you need to be able to predict how many pens you're going to need in six months' time when you're doing activities that you're not quite sure what you're doing. Yeah. And so it's... Hmm. And how, how much paper will you need? How many books will you need? How... What types of permanent marker do you need to label every pot that you're taking? And yeah. just things that you would normally just think oh well i'll get them from the store cupboard or i'll go down the road to the stationery shop and buy some more yeah there are no shops and you've just got to make do with what you've packed so i tend to overpack on a lot of various kind of things we'll have but then there are times when you go oh did you bring any of those tiny little plastic pipettes no, well, I need a hundred of them, yeah. and it's just like, <gasps>
0: there. and there's um, nothing but ocean. For yeah, hundreds of thinking, miles around well, you. what
1: could we use that we've already got that would do the same job? And you improvise. It's amazing the amount of people who will help you with things and hmm. find a way of doing something. But it is again about good communication. So if you've got a whole group of different scientists with different objectives, you've got to make sure that you have everything you need to achieve those already packed in August. And you're not going down until February. <laughs> it's just, you know, I, there's no other element of my job where I'm thinking, what am I going to do in six months time yeah. or seven months time? It's That's like, right. yeah.
0: So uh, to kind of switch gears a little bit, how do you approach writing? Like, how do you, I, I feel like even though I've written papers and a dissertation and all that, and I've done it, been doing it for a while, I still feel like I haven't like figured out the, the <laughs> optimum way for me to do it. Cause, um, I kind of, um, I'm often too perfectionistic, you know, it'll just take me forever to write a paragraph, you know, I'll just, I'll just fuss with it. I mean, the disadvantage of that is it takes forever to write, but I guess the advantage is that by the time I'm done, I'm usually fairly happy with that paragraph and it probably won't change a ton, but then, you know, the paper might change and you might need to get rid of that paragraph. You might have to kill your, kill your favorite paragraph that you spent so much time on. (laughs) So I don't know how do you how do you approach it? Are you a fast writer or do you? I'm kind of the opposite. Yeah, You're I. Kind of the opposite. I always thought, well,
1: if I don't need it, I may as well not spend too much
0: time on it, and I'll yeah. come back
1: and fix something. If it's if I need to keep it in there, but I'm kind of you might be picking up that I'm quite a visual person, so drawings and oh yeah, mapping and all these things that I do. So I'll start with a map or a graph or something I've produced as a as a start point. And I'll know the story I want to tell from having a range of figures. And then I'll throw down bullet points. So I'll write the major sections like introduction, discussion, whatever, just on a blank sheet so that I know that I've got a structure to it. And then I think, oh, random things I must have in my introduction. Yeah. Bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Random things I must have in my methods. Or even my methods might even be ready there then, because I've already done a few analyses and things. And then when it comes to results, it's just look at those. What does that picture tell me now? What am mm, I instantly yeah. thinking from looking at that? Yeah. Those are my random ideas. And the same for the discussion, a whole bunch of random things of what I think that means. Then I go away and research. If I've had an idea about it might be global ocean circulation that's doing... The thing or causing that thing. I'll go and research that and then come back and modify my bullet points. If I've got it completely wrong in my head, then I'll modify those. But I always find having something, even if it's technically wrong at the start, a straw man thing, you know, that kind Mm. of idea that there's something there to knock down, but do it quickly and get as many of the, because I always find that. I have the best idea when I get on my bike and I'm halfway home yeah. and I think oh, I should have analysed that <laughs> and what I do now is I just text myself a, an email to my work email for the next oh, yeah. morning that yeah. says do this thing and there's so many one line or just headings in the, <laughs> the title of the email and that's it that just says do this thing and if I don't what do is that yeah sometimes <laughs> I get it go what was I thinking? That's yeah. the worst idea ever. But there are other times, when it's just before bed or on your bike or whatever, when you just think, just send that one or two words that will make you think about that tomorrow. And so for me, I never craft anything to a finished thing until I've decided yeah. that I
0: really want it. Squid 8, salt. 8, 7, no, I have no idea what this Yeah, is. exactly. No
1: and, but I really... I enjoy the writing process if I find the topic interesting. So if I... am The paper that we were talking about earlier with the climate change stuff... Yeah. I didn't have to write any of the climate change bits, as in the technicalities of the models used or the data that about climate change. I had to write the biology bits and what I thought the implications of the changes to the biology would be. And that was the majority of the paper. So my co-author, he wrote the methods for that section. And I wrote the very simple methods for the biology section. And then it's, what story does this tell me? And that paper was written so quickly because I couldn't wait to get back and write another idea that I'd had or another thought and then rearrange them a bit. And then once I'd got that outline of what I could say from what I'd done, then it was really quick and because it was for a journal that has a short format it was even better because it made me chuck out all the bits that Mm. weren't really interesting or exciting or weren't completely relevant to what I was doing yeah and it made me think about what the problems with what I was writing were so there's always a drawback to something you're doing there's always a limit to how powerful that test is yeah and I really felt that I had to say and here are the other things that this doesn't consider at all so this isn't the right. answer to everything this is just a tool for looking at what we're looking at yeah. and it it was amazing because it really did help me and now for the same paper if I give a talk on that I don't have any words on the screen at all other yeah. than the labels on my figures I just yeah. put up the figures from the paper yes and one of them I break down into small parts and put back together again on the slides so that, that I can show you the thought process where I started with this bit and then I added this bit and then I added this bit and you end up being able to give a talk because it is the same as the thought processes you went through. You don't need a script. You don't need words on the screen. You almost don't even need a title for each slide. Yeah, you just yeah. want to explain the way you are thinking at the time. And those are my favourite kind of papers to write. The ones that feel like they're written by committee where you've done a collaboration and you're writing up a workshop report or something and every word is analysed by 20 different people and there's, yes there's a lead author but there's a debate on everything those nearly kill me to write (laughs) they're like the, I I really think they're important to do but they're the opposite of fun
0: the process is crushing yeah yeah yeah, I imagine the whole IPCC process must be like that, times a million, because there's you know, not just you, but there's actual, I guess there's you know potentially um, government representatives weighing in on you know, what statements they are okay with or not.
1: <laughs> we have the same within fisheries type work in the Southern Ocean. So CAMLA, the Convention on the Antarctic Marine Living Resources, and they determine catch rates for things like krill and things in the southern ocean and that's done by consensus and so all the nations that are signed up to CAMLA. so you've seen a lot of things on the news and on the internet about marine protected areas in Antarctica and these are the people who assign the marine protected areas in Antarctica so there's all that pressure on them to protect the Ross Sea and things like that and they have to all agree it's not that one of them even has to disagree, but if one of them doesn't sign up to it, it doesn't happen. doesn't happen. And they can have a week-long meeting and then have a week-long writing up of the notes from that meeting where they debate whether it's could, should, would <laughs> go into one sentence. So they debate almost word by word of the Good report. Yeah. And it's almost like an industrial process or yeah. so, or, or a legal case. or so I don't know yeah. what it is, but it's... Yeah. It's something where there are people who are professionals at writing that kind of document. And I would just probably cry if but I was involved in that. It, uh, it
0: doesn't feel as creative anymore, I guess. It doesn't feel like you're you know, b- building a kind of scientific narrative. I guess you, you are, but there are just so many people who are involved in the process, so many cooks in the kitchen, that it, it just gets uh, hard to manage and hard to feel ownership of it, I guess. You know the process you described before. You, I kind of got the sense of like, yeah, this is mine. I'm owning this, and I'm creating yeah, this. My thing. inner
1: control freak you know? again came yeah. out. It's just—it's not even that. It's just when I feel I can drive something forward and make a difference. Yeah, that's when I'm feeling useful. When I feel like I'm contributing things that may or may not get used, and the meaning of it will get twisted along the way, and not because anyone's deliberately doing that but it's just what happens when you've got 20 voices speaking over each other and, things. Yes. and I'm not the director of bass. I'm not one of those voices that's going to get listened to and people will go right we're going to use that and put your name next to it mm. I'm a small cog in a big machine so that information <laughs> will appear somewhere but in with 20 other things and it may not say it in the exact way I would have wanted it said and at that point you've got to kind of learn to let go because it's not You know, you can't have it the way you'd want it every time if you're advising governments or international panels or whatever. It's just our job is to provide the clearest explanation of what we found. And hopefully that will be used in some way that's helpful. And there's always politics involved with all these things as well. And that's something I'm not qualified to judge. I may have opinions on it, but I shouldn't be trying to change politics. And it's the same that I read a really interesting thing on Twitter the other day. I'm relatively late to Twitter, but yeah, me too. I, I, got, I kind of handle on that it's useful for communicating a lot of the more interesting things that we do, even if it's just Penguin Awareness Day. I yeah. don't know anyone who's yeah. not aware of penguins, but Twitter believes we need a Penguin Awareness Day. Yeah. Um, but it's a useful tool to communicate along those strands.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm also kind of a latecomer to to Twitter, and I, I've i enjoyed it. I guess there's a worry in the back of my mind a little bit that 90% of it, of science Twitter, I worry that it's just us talking to ourselves, like the scientists talking to other scientists. I have that kind of concern. I, I've, I I've, think. I've
1: gone beyond that now, because <laughs> I have this act first, think later attitude yeah, yeah, quite yeah, a lot yeah. of the time. No, that's I'll fine. go, oh, that... Particular well known non science person likes penguins or Antarctica or whatever, and you've seen it pop up. In, yeah,
0: so you've got an, I'll send got this name.
1: directly to them, and they've got one point something million followers <laughs> who aren't <laughs> going to be polar scientists because there aren't that yeah, many polar yeah. scientists in the world, and then they retweet it, so and you go. Yeah. Oh, that works. Sneaky. Is there anybody else or any other organisations or kids' TV programmes who, who are, co- you know, Octonauts, for example, covers all that stuff. And one of the people who came on our cruise last, you know, the year before last, she had kids who were watching Octonauts, and she took their Octonauts toys on the ship with us, and mm. we put them around in the lab nice. doing science with us. Yeah. And then the Octonauts TV show retweeted all of her tweets about the adventures of her kids toys Ah,
0: cool. Yeah. and that
1: hits an audience we'd never hit and i think very often scientists are shy i'm a rare exception i think i don't care you know if i have to stand up and say something i'll stand up and yeah. say it but i also think yeah why not sell my soul why not do the hideously embarrassing thing if there's an important gain to it so if I yeah, have
0: to like be on a podcast that could be yeah it, <laughs> that could be hideously embarrassing potentially but
1: it, <laughs> you know if they need a person who will go and do the thing where you stand outside the building and shout come in here and see the amazing things we've got hmm. if it means you get ten times more people through the door then I'll go and do it in full British Antarctic survey oh, kit yeah, and wow. say we've got amazing things for you to look at and learn about in here yeah why not and we regularly go to things, things like the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, which has tens of thousands of people go to that event on the bank holiday weekend in May. And we regularly get 10,000 people through our stand in three days. That's awesome. That's good. And even when it was raining, like monsoon rain, and the whole town was almost on lockdown because it was so much rain, we stood outside in full kit because we had waterproof kit. And pointed people in to say, we've got a nice dry place where you can learn about interesting stuff. And we had over 8,000 people through even in that weekend. But it does require you to go, right, I have to talk to complete strangers and coax them to come and learn about some science. Hmm. And I would say 95% of the scientists, if you ask them to do that, go, oh, I don't want to, I feel silly, I'll yeah. be embarrassed. Difficult um, for them. It's like, yeah. yeah, but I never have to see these people again. <laughs> If they think I look <laughs> stupid in my orange clothes uh, trying to tell them about sea spiders that's fine that's They're, very
0: freeing yeah. yeah
1: it's just this thing of well, <laughs> you know it's one weekend I could you know I could be the the loud fool outside yeah. going, look it's raining, why don't you
0: come in somewhere warm and dry It, it can be really really freeing to have that kind of an, an, on, an on, um... I'd say it. Anonymity. Anonymity. There you go. Thank you for helping me out. I'm, I have a small anecdote. I'm just sharing this to relate to what you said slightly, where um I went to a, a friend's, um, he has a, a business in Exeter and uh he was having a, a second anniversary party and uh, they handed me a camera and they said, hey, would you mind taking some photos? And, you know, I'm not a photographer, and, uh, but I, I thought, yeah, okay, sure. And it was nice to, be, like, nobody there knew me except my friend. And so I was just drifting around. So people assumed I was the, oh, you must be from, from some paper <laughs> or something. And I was like, this is kind of nice to just, you know, I can hide behind this. Like, yeah, don't worry about it. And I had that same kind of feeling of like, I'm not going to see these folks again. It's totally fine. Yeah. So there's uh, something nice about, about that. Um, yeah, so the uh, I noticed you were on this Larson Sea project Are you, what's your role in that right because we've got the Larsen <laughs> Sea ice Shelf and the, the large uh, there's a large iceberg that broke off of it a few months ago, and now there's a plan to take the James Clark Ross ship down there to you know do do some science to do some you know physical and biological and I, I guess chemical I'm not sure exactly yeah, what they're planning you know all, all sorts of oceanography uh, around the Larsen Sea kind of uh, iceberg environment that is now kind of newly exposed so what's your what, what, what part are you playing in all of that at the moment?
1: Um, well it's quite an interesting one for me because they're all about to head off to Antarctica next week yeah. so it's it's one of those things where I'm the Cinderella left behind ah. because no don't feel sorry for me it's I months ago before we even considered putting a grant in to go and do this work my sister asked me if she could get married in March Mm -hmm. because, well, did I have any field work or would it clash? (laughs) And I had absolutely no field work on the horizon, so I said, yes, book everything, it's fine. And then a couple of months later, the iceberg moved, we put in a grant and we got it. So I'm a co-investigator on the grant, so I kind of feel like, not that I've ever had this feeling because I have no kids, but I feel like a parent who's sending perfectly well-adjusted kids off to university. But he's still worrying about how they're going to cope yeah. because a lot of the roles that I discussed earlier about collecting the data properly and making the specimens labeled properly and all the things that kind of are those the not so exciting bits but I would make sure I happened when i 'm on the ship i'm having to train other people to do various aspects of what I'd normally do, and they're brilliant people and they'll get it done yeah. but it is that thing of have you got any more questions? Are you sure you've asked me everything you want to know? Have you tested all the stuff before you go? And I gave them old logbooks of data we'd collected and got them to fill in the spreadsheets and databases that need they need to go into with practice data to make sure that they knew what they were doing. And I feel a little bit like they're going to kill me at some point if I, if I nag them too much. But it is... Again, I'm going to be helping with the communication of it back here because they'll obviously be... If they do get in, which is a if, because there's sea ice and everything can change... Yeah, they might not be able they, to get yeah. in there.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's all... It's proper adventure, this one, and that's what I'm a bit gutted about missing. Yeah. But... It is... It's going to be amazing for them and some of the people it's their first time going to Antarctica other people it's their first time working on the ship and so there's all these people who are going to have a brilliant exciting adventure and I get to sit back on the sidelines and watch it which is a bit frustrating but the actual project itself is amazing and just being involved with it and having got the funding and being able to do it it's a first step in what will be hopefully many years of investigating that area because the basic premise is you've got a deep sea like environment under that where there was an ice shelf, so you've got no light penetrating. Oh, yeah. You've got a lack of phytoplankton coming in from the surface, so any food is being brought in from elsewhere.
0: Hmm. So it's
1: like living at the bottom of the deep sea. And in other parts of the Weddell Sea where ice shelves have collapsed, when they've gone in a couple of years later, they found traces of deep sea-like communities. Hmm. But within a year or two, they're replaced by more normal shelf communities. So instead of slow-growing... Low food environment animals, you end up with what you see everywhere else where there isn't ice, and that happens very quickly. Hmm. And nobody's got in there on year zero and recorded what the baseline is before the change happens, before the iceberg. Well, before Before. so, there's not been a full season yet where there's been able to be light penetrating that environment. So if there are animals that will be replaced very quickly, hopefully they'll still be there. And if there are chemical processes happening in the water and the sediments, hopefully those type of things are still going on before high-nutrient food gets into that environment. And the Germans are planning cruises for next year. The Americans are hoping to pull something together. We're thinking of putting something to go in three or four years' time so that hopefully we'll get a time series of how an environment goes, the way I, the analogy I used that if you had a cave where there's no light getting in and everything just comes in through the mouth of the cave, then you took the roof off that cave. For the first time ever, you'd be able to grow plants in there. Yeah. You'd be able to have all sorts of animals that are dependent on plants and all of these things would be a completely different place. And how many years would it take once you took the roof off a cave for it to be unrecognisable as the original environment? And it's probably quite quick, hmm. and so this year zero thing is really a unique opportunity, but also it's a challenge because that side of the Weddell Sea, the Western Weddell Sea, is about as icy as anywhere gets on the entire planet. There's hmm. so much sea ice on yeah. that side, and there's there's a reason why the iceberg hasn't moved that much it's moved yeah. enough for us still to get in, but It all moves quite slowly, that ice. But it can. All you need is one big storm, and the ice can completely disperse. Yeah. So until they set off and actually get there, we won't know if they'll get in. So it's it's about as fast-moving, as exciting as Antarctic science can get, because we have to plan everything normally two or three years in advance. And this is something that's been planned with six months. And to mobilise an ice breaking ship and all of those kind of things in that time scale and to have dedicated science crew from i think it's nine different institutes it's covering everything from surface water right down to the beneath the surface of the mud and people taking cores of the
0: mud to see what the glacial history and things are The ship's going to be packed you know there'll be people on top of each other in the sampling rooms and... and
1: there's actually only about a week's worth of time to do the science as well so this is going to be again another round the clock operation but they even have to it'll be the first time the sea floor has been mapped in that area so before they even do any work they have to take the ship over it with its um, echolocation devices to be able to map what the bottom of the sea looks like there so there's just there's amazing opportunities here to do whatever if they get in whatever they do will be new and exciting to science but there is that huge uncertainty about whether they'll even get there and then an even bigger uncertainty about how workable it would be when you do get there. Is there going to be enough? Not the iceberg. The iceberg's moved enough, but are there chunks of ice floating about that'll get in the way of us deploying yeah. any equipment and things mm-hmm. like that? So there's... It's proper adventure, this one. So it's... Hmm. That's the thing. I could do a lot of open water. You know, I've got another expedition next year that I'm going on, which is mostly open water in the sub-Antarctic Islands areas. Yeah. Which I find really exciting, but other than a storm or a bit of bad weather, all of those other challenges are there. So it's kind of the real beauty of being in the middle of the ice in Antarctica. It's a real yeah. kind of unique opportunity,
0: and it's such a an alien landscape too. It just doesn't look like anywhere else. You know, a field of sea ice at low light. It's just such a. It's a bizarre kind of. Uh, It feels like you're on a different planet sometimes. (laughs) I was lucky enough
1: to go to the other side of the peninsula, to the Amundsen Sea, which is one of the kind of hotspots of global climate change, and um, near Pine Island Glacier. So actually, we were in Pine Island Bay. And we went there in 2008. And we managed to break the ice to get into the Palinia, so the gap in the sea ice where we could work. It was a huge area that was ice-free because of oceanographic conditions. Mm. And we worked there, and it was brilliant. And we got the 10 days of science done that we needed to get done. Then as we were starting to leave, the polina started to freeze up around us. So you could see every phase of sea ice formation happening next to us, which is beautiful. And you see the tiny little ice crystals in the water where it becomes almost like syrupy. It becomes thick. And the bow waves of the ship get dampened out by the ice crystals and things. And then... They start to combine to make pancake ice and these kind of plates, literally like dinner plate-sized pieces of ice, yeah. piling up on top of each other. And at that point, you start to think, this is all very beautiful. But we're in the, one of the most remote places on Earth. And we're the only ship for thousands of miles. We really don't want this to get any more frozen whilst we're still here. And yeah. we had to leave. And <laughs> so there is a thing of, you see this wild beauty and you take a camera with you and you point it in any direction and everyone thinks you're the world's best photographer because Mm -hmm. you've got these amazing shots. (laughs) And you're like, well, actually, I could have held it upside down with my eyes shut and I still would have got
0: a beautiful shot. You could have thrown it in the air and had it land on the deck and it would have taken some... And when
1: you've got wildlife that will come right up to the ship or right up to your feet if you're on land and all of these kind of things, it's just... It's very easy to forget that actually Antarctica is a place where even today, people die in Antarctica. You know, some of these people who are doing their solar expeditions to the pole or whatever, don't make it. You have other people who are working, working, doing science and can get injured or lose their lives because it is a wilderness. It is, you know, you're working in minus 17 degrees. You can easily get hypothermia. You, You are in one of the roughest oceans in the world. So... Sometimes you have to give yourself that reality check of, yeah, I do have to hold onto the handrails when I'm walking down the stairs of the ship, and yes, I can't carry a box on my own, because then I've got no hands free to steady myself, and I've got to be careful because there's ice on the deck, I've got to be, you know, this the big adventure and the fun bits of the science. you also got to realise that you're thousands of miles from the nearest hospital, and you're Looking after the other people is a big part of that where you if you see someone doing something where there should be two people doing it you've got to be straight in there and yeah. help them
0: like you, the risk your well managed but the you know the, the the you can't rush to the hospital like you're saying, so the possible consequences of something going wrong or or yeah. a bit harder to deal with potentially. Because we always have
1: a doctor on the ship, yeah, but if you think about you know the Actually, you don't want to be having serious injuries. You don't want to be having bad frostbite. You don't... Partly because if if I injure myself doing something stupid, that's a very expensive piece of science that people have planned for two or three years to do where they have to turn around and take me back to South America so that I can go to hospital. Yeah. So I don't... You know, everybody has to take that little bit of extra time. Our equipment you know, our health and safety type equipment, so we're all wearing hard hats if we're out on deck, we're all wearing steel toe cap boots, we're all making sure we've got enough layers to stay warm. And sometimes you almost end up overheating because you've got all the layers on for when you're standing around. And then once you start moving and working and lifting, and we have to sometimes sieve hundreds of litres of mud to get a few starfish out of it or whatever. And by the end of that, you're sweating on the inside of those many layers and the boiler suits and everything else. But very often you just have to remind yourself yes it's beautiful and there's penguins and there's albatross and there's whales going past the ship and all the rest of it but watch where you're putting your feet whilst you're looking at those things yeah. and be careful and that's another thing kind of chief science type job where you've got to be sometimes the person who tells somebody off if they forget to wear the right footwear or are constantly not not wearing their hard hat when they go out yeah. on deck and things yeah. and it's that yeah it's it's a serious place as well as probably the most amazing place I'll ever get to go in my life Mm -hmm. but it is it's easy to look at it and go wow it looks like a postcard and it's like yeah it's a postcard that if you were left there on your own you'd probably last about 10 seconds before you
0: postcard that's trying to kill you or is indifferent to whether you look yeah it has
1: (laughs) it's you know there's no phone signal you're not going unless you're with somebody who's got a radio or whatever then (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah. I I I remember um and I'm not trying to oversell, I've only been out the once, you know, the one time, but it was a really informative, you know, few weeks that I was out and I had this experience where um on the ship, on the big ship, I didn't get seasick, I felt fine, but uh we got in some small, rigid inflatable boats and you know, we got out of the ship onto the like we were next to Sydney Island, one of the subantarctic islands. I felt horrible on those tiny little rigid inflatable boats. I got so sick. Uh, I still, like, with the help of the crew to get back to how awesome the crew was, you know, with their help, I still managed to get the samples that we needed to get. Um, But I I remember really vividly, just speaking of kind of this heightened sense of danger or this heightened sense of, like, the potential for something to go really wrong, I remember being in this tiny little, you know, rigid inflatable boat, feeling awful, I've got the two crew members there with me. I see the James Clark Ross, the big ship, off in the distance. It looks all warm and bright. You know, the the light is kind of low, and I see all the lights. And I just remember this, you know, really intense feeling of like, I want to go back there. (laughs) I want to get on that thing. That feeling when you're kind of feeling a bit like out in the wilderness. And again, I'm not trying to oversell it. I was totally safe, but it was just an, an emotional experience of like, oh, I can, I'm not... You know, I'm not in a hotel right now. I'm, (laughs) you know, Sydney Island actually is a good
1: place for getting those kind of. My first ever expedition, I, I was lucky enough to have an extra role on the ship. So I was, there were some samples that had been requested by some terrestrial biologists, so people studying mosses and small plants from Antarctica and lichens and things, and they wanted samples collected at each of the islands we were stopping at to do our marine biology research. And so you had to have permits to go into some of the protected areas. And I was one of the named people to be able to go in and collect these samples. And um, one of the places we stopped... So the first place we visited at all was Deception Island, which is a stunning collapsed volcano where you actually sail into the middle of the volcano. (laughs) And it's like a James Bond villain should live there or something. And that was my introduction to Antarctica. So it was just insane. But one of the other places was Signy. And it was the base was closed it was mm-hmm. late in the season so we normally have people there just for the summer and this was late season so that they would closed up and there were no people there at all and the three of us were put ashore and then the little boat went away yeah because they were going to go and do some more right. work there were some divers going into the water to do some shallow water collections and things like that so the three of us were left on the island and so at that point you realise there's no more crew, yep. there's no more babysitting you. Yes, no there's more just three scientists yes. being left on an island with what I think are 5,000 non-successful, non-breeding male fur
0: seals. Frustrated. So if know, a female like...
1: comes ashore, she's likely to be killed by the, <sighs> the mass brawl that would be in attempt. So there's just basically no females there. There's a lot of angry, young, males or older ones that are just no longer as fit as they were and they are very territorial about their space on the beach and you have to be really careful with fur seals because if they bite you their their saliva is full of really horrible bacteria and things yeah. and you need to get treated very quickly so you're told all this safety stuff but nothing quite brings it home like the fact that you're looking across this beach and you think oh, grey rocky beach and then you realise about one in five of the big rocks you can see is actually a grey seal yeah. lying down on the beach on top of the rock so they're quite well disguised yeah. against
0: the rocks one of these frustrated you know potentially dangerous you know, angry seals. grumpy
1: with a mouth the size of a large Alsatian or something like that with really big spiky teeth yeah. that you know will give you horrible diseases if they bite you yeah. and they're everywhere and you have to cross that entire beach to get to the small lake that you need to find that has the moss gray around the edge and between three of us, we discovered they didn't like singing. The right, first seals right, really didn't like yeah. singing. They'd scatter and the, the more we sang, the further they ran. And we also discovered that if you thought you'd found a good path with a gap, very quickly we realised a gap was just because there was a bigger, scarier male that had a larger territory, so there were fewer Ooh. seals in that area. And it was a far worse thing to do was to go through the bigger gaps because there was a bigger seal. Yeah, You just went for the small gang's of little seals because you could scare them out the way easier than you could scare the big ones out the way and this you know these things are in their natural habitat they can run faster than you on a beach you've been trained on how to deal with them you're told to keep your distance all these other things but when you have to get to somewhere and they don't like you getting between them and the sea then you try going go around the back and there's another one in the tussock grass and it just pops its head out yeah. and they just think couldn't live with this stress every day it's all right for a couple of hours and it's like an adventure but yeah. the people who are on the island in the summer are doing their work and some of them have to go out and count the penguins and count the seals and all these kind of things
0: they have to think about that all the time yeah. and then
1: the people who live on bird island which is our base near south georgia that is covered in albatrosses and other bird species but also on the beaches is where the successful really big males are <laughs> And some of those weigh the size, weigh the sort of same amount as a small car.
0: These just enormous things. Are they calmer, though? They're a bit, they're a bit more No, chill? No, they're not calmer. They,
1: they're... They, they don't want you on their beach. They uh, don't want okay. you anywhere near their females. They don't want you near anything. And then there's some people whose job it is <laughs> to tag them. Right. And these people are incredibly well-trained. And the, you see them walk through the colony, and nothing reacts to them, because they've got the confidence. And you realize that my amateurish ways... <laughs> Showing fear, like with a dog, they know they can sort of yap at you yeah, and nip at you. see it in you. your body language. Yeah, they know that posture, you're an you easy like, victim, you know, whereas the mm-hmm. ones who work with them every day, the people, they can just walk through the colony <laughs> and pretty much not even raise an eyebrow from these things. And yeah, so sometimes you really know that you're in an alien environment.
0: You feel that heightened sense of, of you know, the risks are well managed again, but like you feel that heightened sense of danger. you yeah, and then nowhere in my normal life, other than potentially cycling to work when
1: a bus gets too close to me, do I have that feeling of impending doom yeah. as when there's a huge fur seal deciding it doesn't like you yeah. and is making the aggressive posturing and showing its teeth, and you're just like, oh, okay, yeah. no, this is your world. I'll go around you. I don't expect you to move for me. And uh. but then you have the opposite experience as well, where I went to the floating ice shelf that Halley base is on and we weren't able in the time we had to get to the base Mm. but we were given an hour or so to go ashore even though it was floating um, to get off the ship and just have a walk around and it was amazing because the ship is constantly noisy but when you're on it you don't realise it whereas the ice shelf had no noise Mm. and we just went up the ramp, so a natural-formed ramp from a kind of shallower bit of the ice shelf right up to the top height of the ice shelf, and you could just about hear the ship in the distance, but nothing else. And then you just lay down, and there was nothing. It was the most silence. I've never had that lack of sound before. Hmm. And the snow absorbs all It always. was so peaceful and so nice, and you didn't realise how much you'd got used to the noise of engines and mm. motors and everything running the whole time in the ship. And it was really beautiful. It was, There was nothing like it in the world, so it was about as serene as you can get.
0: Mm. So you found that calming, it sounds like. you found that Yeah, that and that it's
1: the serene. complete opposite of that, oh my God, there's seals everywhere kind yeah, of yeah. feeling. Yeah. And yeah, so there is,
0: there is... I could also find that it's interesting, you know, I could see that being calming, but I could also... See it being a bit, uh, you know, it might invoke a feeling of like, oh, I'm really isolated. <laughs> yeah, i think I'm really if, cut off. You know.
1: I think going to Halley itself, where you'd be in the middle of the ice shelf, not on the edge like I was, mm. where I could stand up and see a view, if there was that and only white in every direction, that I think for someone who doesn't like the flatness of Cambridge would probably be a bit too much for me. So I know I'm not meant to do that kind of work.
0: Did you, um, I had this when i was on the ship every now and then i would i would go outside i would get up on the you know the little um monkey island and things where you can look out yeah and even though i kind of knew there was nothing but you know water for hundreds of miles you know thousands of miles in some direction it's like my my brain couldn't you know it just saw the horizon and there's no there was no feeling of being super far away from everything it's almost like my brain did some weird edit of like
1: Oh, oh no! Bit, yeah, yeah. You <laughs> you can see something. So it's a, the weird. We went out once when we were coming out of the Amundsen Sea. So when we were coming away from Pine Island Bay, the geologists who were collecting marine mud core samples um, wanted to go out towards the polar front. So really, the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And there wasn't even an iceberg out there. There was nothing. We didn't see a bird. We didn't see yeah. a whale. And it was grey, flat ocean. And my brain was fine with the the expanse yeah I expected expanse <laughs> it was when I knew that we were in 3,000 metres of water 5,000 metres of water whatever it was where where my brain couldn't cope with the concept that that's the distance I cycle to work that depth yeah and that's straight down beneath me there's nothing if yeah. I you know you run through scenarios if you got caught up in a piece of gear and went over the side with a weight on you and you just keep dropping yeah, for five kilometres. That my brain couldn't cope with. I could cope with the horizon <laughs> thing, where I could see it, but the idea that the sea now was a lot, like unbelievably deep yeah. beneath me, and I know it was that deep because we sent bits of equipment to the bottom. Yeah, you measured so it. We, we <laughs> measured it. We know. We know. We even collected a few animals from that depth. Yeah, they were very small, <laughs> but we got some stuff. And but my brain really couldn't process. There are certain things about. The size of the ocean, and the depth of the ocean, and even the size of Antarctica. When we were, you know, when we were in the Weddell Sea and you could see the plateau. So, when you're up on the peninsula, you can see mountains and things, and your brain can cope with mountains. Yes. Mountain is a thing. I know that's rock. I know it's spiky. <laughs> it's a big thing.
0: Yeah.
1: But it's not an infinite thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I can see the top of the mountain. I can see the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. That's fine. When you saw the plateau of East Antarctica, so it's like, I guess, Independence Day when the giant spaceship appears and it's just a dome, it's all a huge you see dome. In all and you, yeah. yeah. And you just see this white dome and you're not sure if it's a cloud. or if, And then you go, no, it's not a cloud. That's not a cloud. There's a few little clouds above it, but that is all there is for thousands of miles now. Yeah. This white dome of ice covering, and it's, it. what is it, three kilometres thick, something like that. Mm. And you're just thinking, my brain can't cope no. with the idea again, of the scale of that thing. So yes. it's the same as the depth thing. the The idea that we're working with things that are so huge an ice sheet that's the equivalent of going flying from here to Moscow. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like yeah. I I am not really sure what I do with that information. It's just enormous. No.
0: Yeah, and that and imagine you know people who like astronomers and people who think about way way ridiculously larger <laughs> scale structures <laughs> that we just have we have a hard enough time relating to you know large structures here on the earth i was kind of th- thinking about that depth the the feeling of impending doom related to the depth <laughs> of the ocean that reminded me of uh, a feeling i had when uh so you, you've done this personal survival oh, yeah. strategies so yeah so before you get on the ship you have to do a training course for you know how to properly evacuate the ship So you go to, like, um, a facility where there's a pool and there's some diving boards and they have full wetsuits that you have to get into. And um, when so I I went, you know, a few months before my cruise, and they basically tried to simulate the sinking of a ship. Like, now you will practice, you know, jumping off of the ship. And the whole time we were doing it... uh, Especially at the end, when they shut the lights off and they turn the alarm on and they started spraying us with water, and they really tried to simulate like a they they do a good job of yeah, invoking yeah. that feeling of dread and that feeling of like yeah, something is going something's going horribly wrong, even though you know you're safe, like yeah. they just hit the right emotional <laughs> notes to make you feel that that dread. I was just struck by the feeling of like, so you're having me rehearse, jumping off of my sinking, yes, but warm safe for the time ship. You know, into the southern ocean into the freezing like cold like this this is not it didn't feel like i was practicing for survival it felt like i was rehearsing like this is the last thing you'll do you'll but, just jump into the freezing cold water of the southern ocean because that course actually <laughs> i had it was almost the
1: opposite i yeah. was fine with the pool stuff because oh. i used to do high board and springboard diving yeah and i'm always done swimming and i kind of love all that kind of adventurous nonsense and just climbing and out the lifeboats and all that stuff was brilliant fun but it was the lectures that actually got to (laughs) me because they give you talks on and your survival rate would be if you're wearing your survival suit you will last this long and then you almost see them put the brackets in unless of course you're going to the southern ocean where you'll last five minutes (laughs) And <laughs> say, like, Well I know you can't stop the ship and turn it around in five minutes, so I don't want to go into the sea. Please don't make me go in the sea. Yeah. Uh, but it was always whatever they told us about how likely you were to die. You could live eight hours if you're wearing this. You can survive forty eight hours if you're doing this. In your little boat you'll last this long. Yeah. And A A if in the Southern A Ocean none of those things are true, <laughs> you'll be dead very quickly. Just just <laughs> don't even worry about you don't even have to think, Oh, shall I give up? You'll have shut down before that. and That's if you survived the shock of hitting the cold water, which yeah. might give you a heart attack anyway. Yes. And I was just like, mm, okay. Yeah. But then the only thing that made me really happy was that kelp work that I was talking about where we had to yeah. throw in a hook and catch some floating seaweed, which, if you imagine that from a moving ship that's 100 metres long, mm-hmm. sounds impossible. And these guys caught the kelp almost every time. So... If I was floating past the ship, I'm like hoping they'd you. be able to get me too. <laughs> and yeah, it, But that was just the only thing after years. This was what, something like 10 years after my first trip. I realised they could actually rescue me pretty quickly mm-hmm. if they needed to. Yeah, because yeah. it's just, again, about respecting the environment you go to. I don't think I have a fear of heights. But I could be on the top of the ship, and if you look down the side rather than the front, the front you can see the front of the ship. Yes. When you look down the side of the ship, it's almost flat all the way to the ocean. And you see that deep, deep blue, Mm. broken up by a bit of turquoise and white from where the splash of the bow of the ship is coming through. Yeah. But it's almost hypnotic, and you're looking down, straight Mm. down, and you're quite high up on the top of the ship. Maybe, what is it, 20, 30 metres up, whatever it is. You're high, and you're looking down. And it's that thing of if I fell now, if I fell that, and it's just, why am I even thinking that? Is the first thing that goes through my head. But it's that moment of like you just hold onto the bar a bit tighter, and yeah. you step slightly back from yeah. the edge, and you're like, I'm not going to fall. No reason why I'm going to fall. But it's just sometimes you have to do that thing of the ocean is a big and scary place, and a lot of people are scared of it because there's sharks in it, or there's jellyfish, or there's mm. crabs, or whatever else the water bit is the scary yeah, bit those animals I'd love to see them up close They're, it's <laughs> brilliant but the big ocean and me tiny person that's that's the scary bit of the ocean <laughs> but also the amazing bit that feeling you get mm. and you're just looking around you know, wow this is huge this is not like going on a cross channel ferry where you can see land the whole time this yeah. is I'm in the ocean now yeah. this is like
0: I was surprised by how emotional I got it just kind of being in that uh, environment and looking at the the scope of it and kind of taking it in and seeing the sea ice. Yeah, I was, I was kind of surprised by, by like the, the, and I guess that's why, you know, that's the whole point of like having national parks and stuff is preserving some of those spaces for like people to have those experiences of experiencing something way, way bigger than you are and way like older than you are too. And in the UK, I think Because we don't have the scale
1: that Canada and the US and places have where they have some of their parks are bigger than the UK or whatever. Or really sparsely populated parts of the US like Wyoming and places where you can go out and do hiking trails for 20 days and not see other people and have to worry about bears and things like that. You know, you might have a slightly feral sheep in the UK that might scare you a bit or a cow, (laughs) but it's... It is going back to my childhood. I could go on the beach and just yeah. be me on the beach and find things that nobody else is seeing. Or weirdly, finding a fox coming down to the beach to mm. scavenge and seeing wildlife. If you go to Antarctica, it's like that times a thousand. I can go on a beach and you'll just get penguins coming out the sea and walking up to you and they're looking at you like, what sort of penguin are you? They've never seen a human before. They've no, mm. no fear. The wildlife having no fear is something that blows the mind of any biologist who's been desperately trying to get a good picture of a seagull once and you try and get close and even something that's as mundane as that will fly away when a person comes near. And in Antarctica, they just sit there and look at you like, what are you doing? Why are you here? I'll take a closer look at you. Oh, all right, that's fine. And then they just waddle off. Or you could be on the top of a hill. Interception Island, the volcano I was talking about. We went to the top of a hill to collect some of the higher mosses three Gentoo penguins came walking over the hill in a row, like a little kind of conga line of penguins. I have no idea where they were going. The colony was down somewhere else by the sea where you'd expect a penguin colony to be, but these were just going for a walk over the hill. Hmm. And we even get Adelie penguins turning up at Halley, which is, you know, tens of kilometres inland on a floating ice shelf.
0: Hmm.
1: And these things just turn up and you're just like... And then they'll just hang around the base for a while because, oh, it's people, they look a bit like penguins. This will do as a colony for a while. And so if you're interested in wildlife, and, and even if you're not, it still blows people's minds. You know, even if you've gone to do something that's not biologically related, the fact that you'll have whales following the ship, or you might get dolphins following it when you're leaving the Falkland Islands, or you might get to see birds that you you know like a wandering albatross flying along level with your cabin so when you open your curtains in yeah. the morning there's an albatross the biggest bird in mm. the world just flying next to you and you just yeah it's it's one of those kind of experiences that if I ever didn't get excited by that stuff I think that would be the day to leave this job I knew I was actually talking about having been in this office before and One of the people who was in this office before was Sharon. And she went south at least once a year. And there was one time she came back and went, no. I didn't feel it. Oh, wow. I didn't feel it. Somebody else should have this job, she said. And she went and got a job doing equally fantastic things. She works with, um, I think it's Kew Gardens or similar kind of botany job now, doing stuff all around the world. And she goes to amazing places and has the passion Wow. That she had when she was doing this, but she'd
0: done probably about eight years of this, going all the time. That takes real self awareness. So when when it no longer kind of impacted her, or when it, when she yeah. didn't feel it, she kind of had a sense of, well, okay, maybe that chapter's done. I've I've fulfilled whatever I was trying to fulfill, yeah. and yeah, no, that takes some good good self awareness.
1: But, but it did teach me that I actually need to feel that, and I've so far. And fingers crossed, never lose it. But I've only in a couple of instances where I've seen people go down there and not be blown away by what they're seeing or not enjoyed their trip. And they haven't stuck with it. They've they've left working in that area and gone mm. to other places to do other things because and I think that's right. I think if if you can't be inspired by a trip to Antarctica, then <laughs> You're probably not going to do any more polar science in your life, and you probably want to go somewhere else. And don't blame them. At my leaving university, I said, Why would I want to work somewhere cold? And then, <laughs> luckily, it turned out I was completely wrong. But if I'd have been right, I shouldn't be doing <laughs> this job. It would have yeah. been a real shame.
0: That's perfect. it feels like a really good place to end. Are you, are you happy? Do you want to talk oh, about it? Oh, no, that was great. Else? I yeah. enjoyed that actually. Yeah. It was good fun. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah, that feels like a good kind of natural place to, to Did that about, give you a so. thing
1: that you kind of. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, you know that was that was really good chat, and it was really easy. I didn't, I barely said anything. I just kind of like, I don't so keep much. going. No, it's good. That's, that's useful. <laughs> um, I'm still. I, I some of these things have a cheesy. I don't think I necessarily need one, but some of them have a you know a little thing you say at the end to just to formalize that like okay this is done. But I don't think we need it. I think we just stop. No, if you're happy with that, then yeah, <laughs> uh, it's cool. Okay, sorry about the sudden stop there at the end. That's uh, I'm still learning something about GarageBand has to do with a tempo setting that I didn't know mattered (laughs) that, uh, sets the maximum record length. Uh, thank goodness I got everything. Thank, thank goodness the recording cut off literally pretty much as we were done. That could have been, that could have been a disaster, but, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed the chat. Um, again, Hugh Griffiths, if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's, uh, Griffiths underscore Hugh, uh, well, you know, at Griffiths underscore U, of course, being Twitter. Uh, he's there. You might see him on BBC every now and then. He's uh, very active. He's got a very uh, big media presence for a scientist. He's uh, certainly one of the more active ones. So, uh, yeah, thanks again. Thanks again, Hugh, for stopping by. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you later. I still don't have a formal tag at the end or something. to uh, maybe, maybe I need one. Maybe I don't. I'm not sure. Something to just wrap it up, as I was mentioning to Hugh. So uh, I'll just try. Uh, I don't know. Let's see how this goes. Uh, See you later.